0: human first everything else after welcome to what's betwixt us stories of working while human i'm lisa mandel what's betwixt us is a series of conversations about empathy at work at work it's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job any job and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I chat with lifelong storyteller and writer Melissa Bowles. Melissa is the marketing manager at Book Club, which brings authors and readers together via online book clubs, led by the authors themselves. Melissa is passionate about mental health awareness, and believes that empathy for mental health issues can be built by reading. We talk about the importance of self-knowledge and self-reflection to raise empathy by talking through what you're processing. On a note of optimism about the year we've just experienced, she says, the internet can be a tool to understand other people. Tuck in and enjoy episode 25, Empathy Between the Pages with Melissa Bowles. Well, I am delighted to say that on this episode of What's Betwixt Us, the podcast about empathy at work, sponsored by Zany, the app for Slack that brings empathy and authentic human connection into remote workspaces, uh, I have the marketing manager at Book Club, um, a writer, a lifelong storyteller, the board president for the Columbia River Mental Health Foundation, Melissa Bowles. Melissa, welcome to What's Betwixt Us.
1: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, I wanted to start by asking you because of course I've been stalking your LinkedIn profile (laughs) as one does. Mm -hmm. And the, the central focus is storytelling, Mm -hmm. which seems like it has really bled into every aspect of your life from when you were young. So it seems like you use storytelling as a way to connect with yourself, to connect with other people, Mm -hmm. um, to really build the fabric of that empathy. So can you tell me about storytelling how it first became important to you, why you love it?
1: Yeah, sure. I will be totally honest with you that I don't know how it came, became so important to me. It's just always been a part of who I am. Mm-hmm. I My parents read to me um, when I was, <clears throat> excuse me, very young, um, and I started reading pretty young, and that sort of became a huge part of, my personality I was the girl that carried books around Um, you could always find me reading at lunch at school Um, my parents eventually had to stop sending me to my room when I was in trouble because that's where all the books were so um, you know it just books really became this huge part of who I was and and the stories that came with them so you know I did a lot of dress up as a kid and, um, you know, playing with paper dolls and that kind of stuff. There's videos of me doing that from when I was very little, telling the stories. Um, And they weren't just the stories that I'd seen on the movies or the books that had been read to me, but I was making up new things, new ways that the people were interacting with each other. And so when I started to learn to write and started writing stories, that just became such an important part of my life and then when I was in I think it was fourth grade I always get the years mixed up but my elementary school did something on Dr. Seuss's birthday every year and uh uh, March 2nd and we for the week or so ahead of time they'd have kids write their own stories so the teachers would talk to them about you know how to build a story and you'd um you'd write your own story and then the teachers would publish them into a like you know spiral bound laminated book um, that you got to keep. And then they would put you in random classrooms and you'd get to share your stories with other kids. Mm -hmm. And the year I remember most distinctly, I think we did it before this, but the year I remember the teacher whose classroom I was in was a teacher I didn't know. Um, His name was Darren Burke and he's still a teacher. And he liked my story so much that he wanted me to come read it to his first and second graders. And I, which was like incredible for so many reasons. But then, you know, he told me, he was like, I think you're going to be a published writer one day. And I'd had other teachers and parents, you know, tell me that they liked my writing before, but he was the first one that really kind of said, like, this is what I think you're going to do. And I had other interactions with him throughout elementary school um, that sort of solidified that for me. But Ever since then, it's been such a huge component of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been able to incorporate it into pretty much any job I've had. So when I worked in higher education, I talked a lot about you know, how are we telling the stories of these students? How are we sharing what they're learning? And I would often use my own experiences from college, um, sharing my own story with them to help them understand, like it's OK if you're struggling right now. It's OK if you're dealing with mental health stuff. And then when I worked in workforce development, I tried to do the same thing. Um, There's a little bit less. Sometimes one of the things you run into when you're sharing stories about other people is permission, right? So like (laughs) um, there's only so much you can share sometimes, but in the last, I would say probably decade, the thing that's been the most important to me is talking about mental health. Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 15 um, and anxiety a few years later, and then ADHD when I was 30. And being able to talk about that has helped me understand myself better and be able to sort of process through the things that I'm dealing with. And every time I've shared something about what I'm going through, at least one person has said to me, thank you for saying this, I needed to hear it, or um, thank you for like, now I feel like I can tell my story. And that's, such, that's so important to me is um, other people being able to talk about what they're going through too. So, and then in the last year, I lost my job in May, And uh, spent the next nine months freelance writing and doing some other things. But the most important thing to me was that I started seeing how stories were told differently for a lot of people um, and investing more time in, you know, reading and watching plays and doing that kind of thing. And then when I got the opportunity to work for book club, um, it was like everything I'd ever done came together. So (laughs) Um, and
0: um, yeah. I would love it if you would talk a little bit more um, about book club and and because I know it's it hasn't f- officially launched yet.
1: Right, really. that's so, right.
0: Yeah, uh, share it with the people.
1: Yeah, so we are, at our core, we are a platform designed to connect authors and readers. Um, We're author-led, so that means that the authors that we work with get to decide, you know, what books of theirs will be on the platform, what conversations they want to have. But ultimately, um, so we're um, heading towards launch this spring. We want to be a place where someone can come and bring their own book club of people or They can come on their own and find new people that they've never met before from all over the world to talk about a book with, um, and then to get more connections to that author, learn from that author, you know, then find other books to read. We were, we were started by some of the co-founders of a company called DeGreed, um, which is designed to like help people get education without having to get a degree. Mm -hmm. um, Because higher education, as much as many of us love it, is not accessible to everyone and is very convoluted and it's extremely unnecessarily expensive. So (laughs) our co-founders believe that education should be accessible to everyone and that you can learn so much outside of higher education. Um, And that's really, you know, book club is designed to teach you things through books because we know that that's how a lot of people can learn them. And it doesn't, you know, fiction books, nonfiction books, it doesn't matter what you're reading. You can learn something from them. And so we will, when we launch, we'll have a website platform and also an app. And the coolest thing is that people will get to connect with the authors that they love and get to invite them to their, you know, Zoom book club meetings and ask them questions. And it's going to be really exciting. I think people are going to really love it.
0: I mean, it sounds like, you know, a major thing about it because reading can be uh, an isolating experience, right? Mm-hmm. It can be a lonely experience, but it sounds like what Book Club is doing is injecting this uh, this connection ability, so that yeah. you're not just reading by yourself. You're getting to then share it. And as this is a podcast about empathy, I feel like that's like a really that's a really major thing about Book Club and something mm-hmm. so cool about it. And I wonder if you could speak to your experience so far because I know you just started working there of mm-hmm. of uh, the empathy, maybe philosophy at book club or like Mm -hmm. the vibe that you get being there regarding empathy?
1: Yeah, definitely. So our CEO, David Blake, he um, has said a number of times that the number one priority for him when he's thinking about our staff is that people are able to come to work as themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so whether that means that you have whether you're neurodiverse, whether you um, are of a race that's not typically found in tech. Secondly, we are like a tech startup. We have a number of people on the team who they have a ton of experience in what they're doing, whether that's like coding or design work or communications, but their degree is not in that or they don't have a degree in that. And David is really, he has made it a priority to find people who can do good work regardless of whether they're credentialed in sort of the traditional sense. And I think that really speaks to um, a number of things. One is um, this sort of culture of diversity and inclusivity happening at book club, um, but also how David and the other co-founders, Emily and Eric and Christine, and then our, our leadership really understand and speak to empathy. It's probably the first place I've ever worked where if I said like, Hey, I'm just having a, like, I need a mental health day. I would feel very comfortable saying that and then being like, totally take the day, like, whatever you need. I've worked other places where that hasn't been impossible, but it's not been a very comfortable space to do that. Whereas at book club, they want you to come to work as your full self and they want you to do your job well. And if you need, you know, a mental health day or whatever, that's what they want.
0: I mean, that's huge. And I, the, So the, you know, the company that I work for, Zany, the main focus is about empathy. And what my founder likes to say is, you know, we have to eat our own dog food. Mm -hmm. So if we are talking about the importance of empathy and listening to people and giving them space when they need space and grace when they need grace, that extends to us as well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as somebody who also struggles with both depression and anxiety, that has been huge for me in feeling like, you know, they really want the best version of me. They don't just want whatever version can show up and like crank out work. They want the best version of me. And I think that more companies could learn from that. It makes such a difference.
1: It makes a huge difference. And what I have found is that um, a lot of companies will say that they want you, they like want you to be able to do your best work and come as your authentic self, but their actions don't show that. And and Book Club is really, they've shown that to me in a number of ways, um, not least of which is that like, my, so the CEO follows me on Twitter, which is such a benign, like, oh, just it's Twitter. But I'm very open on um, social media about my mental health and the things that I struggle with. And he doesn't mind that I'm open about that. And then we'll also like check in on me and be like, how's it going? Like, are you feeling good? How are you feeling at book club? And that that's a huge deal to me because I feel like he respects me and he trusts me to do my job. And he expects me to show up and do it well but he knows that I can't do it well if I'm not supported. That's the thing that we don't often see, um, especially in like the corporate world, but we don't see it a lot in, you know, the workforce at all um, because more people are concerned about just getting stuff done.
0: Right. The profit, profit over people. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think, and this is a question that I often ask guests on this just because it's such a huge part of our lives right now, but do you (laughs) think that The pandemic has contributed to sort of like uh, an increased an increased focus on empathy and increased Mm -hmm. focus on like being okay with people and their people-ness
1: yeah I would say I think it has in some cases I think um it's interesting I was talking about a friend with this the other day and she was telling me that someone she works with she volunteers with them posted something on Facebook about like I know things are tough, but like, just work harder, just get it done. Like you can do it. And she was like, I I have a child that I have to homeschool basically. I mean, the teacher's there and doing a lot of things, but like, there's a lot of extra stuff that parents have to do that I don't understand as someone who's not a parent and she's working full-time and her husband is home working full-time. And she's like, yeah, I could work a hundred hours a week and like do all that stuff and get it all done. But it's important that we have grace for each other. And so I think that some people are understanding that better and seeing that differently, especially if they are suddenly working from home or they um, their kids are doing online school and that's brand new for them. But then there are other people who are still very much in the mindset of like, just work harder, just get it done faster, just get it done better, which is so like, <laughs> it's so frustrating and also I think That group is getting smaller and smaller because more people are seeing like, oh, I had no idea the level of work it would take to, you know, work with a teacher who's teaching my kid online, but I have to make sure my kid is in her class on time every time. I have to, you know, all of that kind of stuff and also do my job. The New York Times did a really powerful profile on, on several moms who are working full time and their kids are at home that i honestly wish was required reading for everyone like i think people would understand how to empathize with people a lot more if they could see what their lives looked like inside the pandemic
0: i mean it's so true i so i live in new york and whenever i'm outside you know every person that i encounter i have to remember there's a whole story behind mm-hmm. that person and passing like thousands of people a day yeah. you know it goes deep and and we're all carrying so 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 much, yeah, and so just just to keep that in mind, I think is enormous. I wonder if you could speak to like in the kinds of work that you have done before, have mm-hmm. you always worked have you always worked remotely or yeah. no, so can you speak to like empathy as it has shown up in other kinds of work environments mm. versus working remotely?
1: yeah. So I think I, what I will sort of preface this saying is that I did not want to work remotely at first because the company that I was working for at the time, we had just spent nearly nine months working remotely because our office was being remodeled. And then we went back, we were back in the office for a month before oh, no. the pandemic. <laughs> so I was not happy. <laughs> and I had really struggled working remotely because I function really well with other people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what we often see in an office environment is that there are there are people who work really well in a big open workspace with lots of people around them. There's sort of a like dull roar kind of um, of people. And then there's other people who work really well in a closed office. And when we transitioned to remote work way before the pandemic, those people who worked really well in that closed office thrived because it was like, excellent. I'm at home. No one can like, you know, tap me on the shoulder and bother me. And those of us who liked having other people around did not do well. Mm -hmm. Um, And we all, you know, adjusted, things like that. But I have found that there's an interesting sort of phenomenon in the work environment where the people you work for often assume that you will just adjust to whatever is happening Um, and i think that there are some people i've worked with particularly in higher education i would say because a lot of us come from a counseling background or a social work background that understand like, oh, you don't work well in this type of environment, let's figure out how we can you know, help support that. But in, in some of the other environments I've worked in, that's not necessarily the case because they don't come from um, a background that looks at people as a whole. They come from like a solving the problem background. So when I was in higher education, it was very easy for me to say, I have X, Y, and Z to get done can I put headphones on or can I go work in a closed office? And they were much more comfortable saying like, yeah, like let's figure out, you know, what would work best for you. In workforce development and in some other environments I've worked in that has not always been the case. I would say that there are exceptions, of course, to that rule, but often um, they're, you know, they feel like you should just be able to adjust to whatever's happening. I think the other thing about seeing empathy in the work environment you know, pre-pandemic is that there was a lot less for people to empathize with. So when we're all in a like collective situation, everyone can kind of figure out a way to empathize. So my, the CEO of my last company had two kids and his wife was in medicine. And so he was working from home full-time and like hanging with the kids who were too young to be in like elementary school. They'd gone to like daycare and preschool, but they they were both under kindergarten at the time, but his wife had to go to work because she was in medicine. It was not a thing that like she wasn't directly related to the pandemic, but she still needed to be there, and that was a priority. And so his life changed, and I think he was able to empathize a lot differently than he had before because he suddenly understood what other people were dealing with, and and that I think was really valuable for him. I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but. I assume that that was valuable for him, but pre-pandemic he didn't. I don't know. It's not that he didn't try to empathize, but I don't know that he could.
0: Or he didn't. He didn't need to. Like the circumstances mm. were such that he needed to. I mean, this, you know, brings me back to the to the discussion of mental health and the stigma around mental health. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the pandemic is a. And I read one of your pieces about this that was excellent. The pandemic is a tra- is a trauma is a long. Mm traumatic experience for so many people that uh, people who have never even struggled with mental health issues before Mm -hmm. are suddenly coming face to face with it and needing to you know interface about that uh, Mm -hmm. at work and so it seems like maybe there's the pandemic maybe a bright spot of the pandemic is that it is softening the stigma Mm. against mental health because so many more people are understanding totally now the, you know, w- w- would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I would. I think that, you know, I wrote that piece particularly about how we are going to deal with this trauma and the fact that we're not really ready to deal with it because mm-hmm. understanding mental health and trauma is so new to so many people. And I, so my, um, one of my housemates uh, is has been struggling with ADHD for a long time and she's finally like, okay, I need to go you know, see if I can try some medication or some other support systems and in a lot of States, but in particular in Tennessee, which is where we are, you have to have an official diagnosis to get medication and she cannot get in to see a therapist or a psychiatrist um, in order to do that for nearly eight weeks because they're booked, they are booked solid and they're understaffed. And I think that that's something that, you know, we are gonna have to figure out how to handle um, as a country, as a collective, because lots more people need mental health support now or are more willing to access it. Um, they may have needed it before because they have no idea how to deal with something like this. Mm-hmm. And we just don't have enough people to do that. We don't have enough psychiatrists and psychologists and counselors, which is unfortunate. And we, you know, our healthcare system doesn't necessarily always cover mental health which is another whole issue. I (laughs) Um, mean, don't
0: even get me started about that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think that there's going to be a lot more conversations about how we recover in the future. I think that right now people are still in a very like responsive place. You know, how do I deal with what's happening right now? there's going to be a, some interesting different levels of trauma. There's going to be the trauma of, oh my God, we were in a pandemic. What do I do? And then there's also the trauma of like, I stayed in my house for a year. How, how do I like interact with people again?
0: I've been thinking about that so much. And I, so I'm, I come from a background of, I'm an actor, comedian, storyteller, mm-hmm. used to being on stage, was serving tables for years. And the social aspect of it was what made me thrive. And mm-hmm you know, I lost my serving job in March, last mm-hmm. March, and I have another couple of other like side jobs that I do remotely, but I'm having anxiety about what if I don't remember how to talk to people? What if I don't remember how to be on stage? Yeah. What if I have stage fright? It's like totally flattened the environment that mm-hmm. I thought was my life. Yeah. Where I have to start from scratch. And now I'm actually considering going back to school to get a master's in social work, because mm. I feel like that is, as you said, needed.
1: Mm.
0: Another way to connect with people that goes a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah, I'm terrified.
1: (laughs) Yeah, which is totally fair. And I think that there's gonna be a lot of people, one of the things I said to a friend of mine last summer when I sort of shifted towards writing full-time and doing communications work was like, we're gonna see an astronomical number of people change their profession. Um, for a number of reasons, not least of which is like most of them <laughs> lost their jobs. And so they had, to, they had to do something else. But there's also going to be a number of people who look at the profession they've been doing, um, even if they've been doing it remotely this entire pandemic, and said, I hate this, or like, this is not what I should be doing. Moments like pandemics and you know anything that calls into question your morality changes how you look at the world. Worse. Um, And so a lot of people are going to be changing jobs. And I think the other thing, this sort of like underlying level of trauma that we are, I have absolutely no idea, idea how to address is how do you reconcile all of the people who said, I don't need to wear a mask. I don't need to stay inside my house. I can continue to do whatever I've been doing and prolonged this. I mean, the rhetoric then was if everybody just stays home for two weeks, we curb it. But right. no one did well, there were people that did that. I did it. I didn't leave my house for two weeks. <laughs> but
0: okay. well, right. And if you were in, you know, I was in LA at the time and people yeah. were taking it very seriously.
1: Yeah. Like, you know, New York took it extremely seriously. But then like you know, entire states like Florida were just like, meh, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. And like, how do you reconcile that people around you, and in some cases for a lot of people, the people that they trusted and family members, just decided that they didn't think it was a big deal?
0: Yeah, I think it's so interesting that, you know, people talk about this time as a time of, like, great awakening mm. for many people, and... I think that that's true but I think that we've sort of awakened into two mm-hmm. very divided streams of consciousness you mm-hmm. know those mm-hmm. who didn't care about the masks didn't care about social distancing were more interested in like keeping their businesses going and keeping mm-hmm. their social lives going and you know and and those who took it really seriously mm-hmm. and I think in a lot of ways you know the pandemic has Brought people together mm-hmm. in in new ways, and in a lot of ways, it's shown us our differences even more. Mm-hmm. I mean, and especially in especially in the U.S.
1: Oh know? yeah, yeah. I think too. Um, one of the things I've been trying to you know remind myself, and that I often talk about with people, is that those of us who are suddenly experiencing this complete lack of empathy from our family members or the people around us are suddenly understanding only to a very minor level what life has been like for people who have disability, people who are Black or Latinx or other people of color, Indigenous people. Like they, people who are disenfranchised or diverse or whatever, however you wanna phrase it, have been experiencing this lack of empathy for hundreds of years. And we are only now starting to like even barely understand And I think that that's been valuable for some people and that they finally realize, like, oh my God, I have no idea. But I can only imagine how frustrating it must be for the people who have watched this happen and then are like very rightly concerned that it's just gonna return to what it was before. And that so many of us are not like, are still not gonna understand, you know, how disenfranchised some of the people in this country have been for so long
0: yeah i mean call me pollyanna i am i am <laughs> hopeful about yeah. the the like it's not going to be everybody there are going to be people who dig their heels into the mud and say i refuse to change i refuse to move mm-hmm. forward totally. until they die but i think <laughs> that a huge number of people and i was listening to stories about this like in the lead up to the election mm. for instance um what was it on? It was on, was it on the daily or was it on this American life or radio lab one podcast mm. talking about these um, moms in Ohio mm. who, uh, who had been totally right wing. And then, you know, when the George Floyd killing happened, mm. it completely changed them. And they, they were activated and motivated to start these whole groups um, to say, you know, do you want to live in a society where our, our children are treated this way? Mm. And I, I think I think that there are lots of stories like that too. So I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be
1: optimistic. I cautiously optimistic is the way that I love to phrase it is like, we can see that there are people who are changing. Um, and, and I think you're right. I mean, I, there are a number of people and people that I knew who were either very strong Trump supporters or voted for a third party candidate in the 2016 election were adamant that, that, we make sure that Biden get elected just to get us out of the current situation that we're in i mean you know he's not perfect there's some problems but you know we can get ourselves out of we start to get ourselves out of the current situation that we're in and i watched those people change so dramatically because they were like my entire life has changed my business has gone under or a lot of them were very suddenly Black Lives Matter activists. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Like, good. <laughs> Thanks good. for coming.
0: <laughs> I hope you have staying power there. I yeah. hope you have staying power.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: So I want to, I want to take it back to mental health. And I know you're the, are you the, the outgoing board president for the Columbia River Mental Health Foundation?
1: Yes. Can do
0: you want to talk a little bit about, about that? And because you've, you've been involved in mental health for many, from many Mm -hmm. directions, right? Mm -hmm. From like experiencing yourself to championing, you know, through your writing. So Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about the foundation?
1: Yeah. Um, So I mentioned I live in Tennessee, but I'm from um, Washington State. And the area that I live in is just north of Portland, Oregon, and we're right on the Columbia River. The Columbia River um, Mental Health Foundation was created, I think, 20 years ago or so to support the um support Columbia River Mental Health Services and folks who are dealing with mental health issues in southwest Washington, particularly in Clark County, which is the county that I lived in. There's also a Clark County in Nevada, but this is a different one for in the Washington <laughs> one. <laughs> so I joined the foundation. Gosh, I think maybe in maybe in six, six, no, maybe in 17. Time is a mess. So
0: I mean, it's well, time it's, is a
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> several years ago and I was invited to join because of my like act like interest in talking about it and then also my personal experience but the foundation was designed specifically to provide support for folks who were unable to get the mental health care that they needed through their insurance our health care system and the insurance, disaster, does not always cover mental health and they often, right, often will only cover it to a certain point. So like you might get 10 appointments or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're dealing with a severe mental health issue, if you are recovering from addiction, 10 appointments isn't going to cut it. And so the foundation does a number of things, but the most important thing that we do is we cover the gap. Um, So if somebody comes in with Medicare or Medicaid or um, an insurance provider that doesn't cover enough of what they need, we cover what the rest of what they need. So they have to use their insurance all the way through first, um, but then we cover the rest Um, because we know that if you are, whether you're dealing with ADHD or anxiety or bipolar disorder or addiction cutting off your mental health services is only going to make it worse.
0: (laughs) Dangerous. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, often most of the folks we're dealing with are on Medicare or Medicaid, but you know, we'll help other folks too. And then the other, the other thing that we do is particularly for folks who are low income living near or below the poverty level, although that's convoluted also arbitrary at this point, but you know, if someone comes in and says, I have two kids," And I'm, you know, I need this mental health treatment, but we just discovered that because of the things that I've been dealing with, we're going to get evicted if I don't figure out how to pay some back rent that I owe, or if I don't figure out how to do, you know, whatever. We have a grant program designed specifically to help with those emergencies, because the other thing we know is that you cannot handle your mental health or your behavioral health. So addiction, whatever that looks like if you don't have a place to live or if you don't have food to eat or if you don't have a car or, you know, and a lot of people, and I know this from my work in mental health and also my work in workforce development, often you lose one thing, everything else starts to fall. So you get evicted, then you might lose your car, then you might lose your job. If you lose your job, then you lose your car, then you lose your, you know, so like everything, it dominoes really quickly. And so we work with community organizations to make sure that, you know, the folks that we're working with have accessed all of our community supports first, whether that's, you know, housing support or food support or whatever it is. But then if they have, if they've really broached all that or they don't qualify for it or whatever, then we're able to step in. And we usually can cover at least a month um, of rent. Sometimes if they're in a really like dire situation, we might, you know, do one or two sometimes we've covered deposits on apartments, um, just to get someone in. We have, uh, we've helped people fix their vehicles. We have, you know, one woman, her, I think her family had been through divorce and addiction and they'd been dealing with all this stuff. And it was her son's birthday and she didn't have any money to like buy him a birthday present. So we gave her a gift card to buy him a birthday present. And so like that, like, It's those kind of moments that not only just help people thrive in general, but it boosts their mental health in a way that allows them to keep coming to the mental health appointments. So we, I mean, we spend all of our time is just fundraising money to funnel back into people who need mental health support. We have one part-time staff member, everyone else on the board is a volunteer. Um, We want all of the money that's donated to go to supporting folks who are dealing with mental health issues. And we have some specific donors who wanna deal um, with folks who are dealing with suicidal ideation or suicide recovery because they've lost family members that way. Um, We have folks who specifically donate because they wanna help support those who are recovering from addiction. And all of it just allows us to support particularly Columbia River mental health services. But honestly, like anyone who comes to us for mental health support, we would be happy to have that conversation with them. And right now we just started, uh, we just brought a couple of new members onto the board. One of whom used to work for or maybe currently works for the police department because one of the number one things that we see with police departments, anywhere, regardless of where you live, is that they have no concept of how to handle mental health. Right. And, oh, no, they're not trained for it at all. And we, there's a, an organization that was started out of Southwest Washington, um, but that is statewide in the state of Washington now called uh, Mothers of the Mentally Ill. And it was started by a couple of moms who, whose sons either were severely mentally ill or had died in experiences with police who did not know how to handle mental health situations Um, and one mom in particular her son was picked up by the police they couldn't they thought he was drunk and so they took him to the hospital because they didn't have the capacity to take him to their facility and the hospital released him the next day by putting him in a cab and sending him downtown Seattle and he was missing for months because no one you know no one thought to ask like well he didn't know how to you know address that he was dealing with mental health issues um he also at a certain point believed he wasn't dealing with mental health issues he thought that you know which happens to a lot of people um, with severe mental health stuff happening but he just then was gone for so long and they finally were able to locate him and get him you know some treatment for a while but you know he ended up he died by suicide I think a year and a half ago or so. And it all of it started because he just kept getting picked up by the police and taking to the wrong place.
0: Right. Which, you know, when you're talking about this, it really sounds like uh, if there's a communication breakdown more mm-hmm. than anything, and that, that empathy is a, a language, that yeah. empathy is a form of communication. It's a, yeah. it's a way of like listening, slowing down and really listening and really mm-hmm. taking in what the other person is giving you before responding or or making judgments.
1: Yeah. Well, and I, so I was, um, I talked about this with some folks I did some writing for last year, but, and I, I think I've heard that there, someone is trying to do this somewhere, but the number one issue we run into with this is that people, your neighbor who might know that you're dealing with a mental health issue, there's nowhere for them to call except 911. Right. There's no mental health like emergency number, if there was an emergency number that they could call and say, my neighbor who I know has bipolar two, or is dealing with schizophrenia or whatever it is, is having a mental health crisis. And then they could send someone who knows how to handle a mental health crisis. It would change everything. But right now, the number you have to call is 911. And they send the police who don't know, who aren't trained and maybe are trained, but like it's... (laughs) they just they're not used to it they don't know how to handle it
0: yeah but I mean I think the whole the whole um conversation around defund the police Mm. is opening the door for conversations like this totally and there needs to be other places to call yeah yeah Yeah. I mean so you've had I feel like you are really an empathy professional based on the amount of you know mental health adjacent stuff that you've done and what would you yeah thank you (laughs) like as you know as a mentor to the people, you know, what are some, what are some bits of guidance that you could give around how to like raise empathy or awareness to the people around you?
1: Yeah. I think, um, I think there's a few ways. So what I will always say anytime anyone asks me if they want to learn about anything is that the first thing you need to do is read as much as you can. There are a lot of really powerful memoirs and nonfiction books about mental health and mental health therapy that I think would help people understand not just that particular mental health issue, but like people in general. So Roxane Gay's Hunger is a really great example of like, not just how to understand people who are fat or overweight or whatever word you want to use, but also how to understand trauma and how to understand how people cope with things. I read last year, one of the my favorite audio books that I listened to was called, I think it's called, I think you need to talk to someone. The, uh, Lori Gottlieb is the author and she is a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And her, the book is about her own experience going through therapy and how it helped her be a better therapist. And that to me is like such a huge example of, you can't understand, I mean, know, I know there's a difference between empathize and sympathize and all of that, you know, the, re, like, <laughs> the semantics of it, but you cannot understand how to empathize with people if you don't understand what you're going through yourself, even if it's completely different from what they're dealing with. So I think that anytime you can read a book that's written by someone who's had dealt with a mental health issue or has dealt with trauma, I think that's gonna be um, a huge component for people I think the other thing is find a way, and it does not have to be public. It doesn't have to be online. It could just be to your best friend or your partner or whatever. Find a way to talk about what you're processing through because the more you talk about it, the more you'll understand what you're currently going through. And then the more you'll be able to say to the person you're talking to, oh, I understand now what you said to me about X, Y, and Z, or, you know, now I, understand what my kid is going through or whatever. And then I think the other thing I, the internet can be so scary and like negative for people. But the number one thing I've gotten from the internet is a, like how to understand other people because people are, are sort of absurdly willing to talk about their stuff online. I think there's a lot of like, oh, I'm behind a screen. So no one can see my face stuff happening, but people are willing to talk about the things that they're experiencing. And if you listen, it is much easier to understand why people might be struggling with something. And I think that's, it's something that I wish more people would do. And I wish I could find a way to sit down some of the people who, you know, have such a vehement disagreement about masks or whatever it is and say like, do you, are you listening to the things that people are saying to you? Are you listening to the 500,000 families who've lost someone? Like, do you understand what's happening here? And I think that I, everyone is capable of empathy. I think that, there are some people who have dealt with their own trauma or their own family stuff or whatever it is, and that their capability for empathy is buried really deep and it, they may not be able to find it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, it
0: was, it was a mechanism of protection yeah. for them to bury that softness. Totally. Yeah. But they yeah, can love- find it. Yes. Yeah. If they want to.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The internet, I think it can be a very, very dark place and mm-hmm. can, can, can has the potential to divide and worsen people's issues. But I also agree with you that like, especially during the pandemic, a lot of the great learning and reading mm. that I've done has come through the internet. Like a totally. lot of the great connecting I've done has come through Instagram, you know, Yeah. and learning. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Well, Melissa, I like to end these conversations by asking guests uh, one of the questions from the Zany database, because Zany mm. is basically a it's a conversation engine to get people talking to each other about non-work related things in the office. And so the question that I have for you today, especially as a reader is what fictional world would you love to get lost in? Oh man. That's a good
1: question. <laughs> I think so. This is one of my favorite book series ever. It's a, I think there's four of them. It's written by Tamara Pierce and the first book is called, I think it's called Alana the warrior i don't i'm struggling to remember the title but this young woman um alana she has always wanted to be a knight and her twin brother has always wanted to be a like magician sorcerer type of thing it's a very like fantasy world I, it's a middle grade reader the first time i read it i think i was like 9 but they in the, in the world that they live in, women are the sorcerers and um, they do all the medicine and men are the knights. And so these twins trade places and Alana goes off to be a knight and her brother goes off to, you know, train to do medicine. Um, And she becomes the first like female knight. And it is honestly, it's one of my favorite books I've ever read. I think about it all the time. Like I would love to live in that world and like, I mean I don't know that I would be a knight but I would certainly love to like live in a world where the first woman knight like it feels very like first female vice president like it's just yes. very,
0: like... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah that's amazing yeah but plus plus like you know magic oh yeah that's all yeah yeah amazing well Melissa if people want to read more about you or read some of your work where can they find you
1: yeah, um, my website's pretty easy. It's just melissabowles.com. And then you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram. My handles, um, both of those are Mel of the Ball. It's Mel with two L's. And then just like a princess at the ball. So <laughs> I love
0: it. Melissa Bowles, thank you so much for being a guest. On What's thank you. Betwixt us. Thanks for tuning into episode 25 of What's Betwixt Us? Stories of Working While Human. To learn more about Melissa and read some of her writing, check out melissabowles.com. That's B-O-L-E-S. You can find her on social media at Mel of the Ball, Mel with two L's. More about Book Club at bookclub.com. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zanie, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at Z-A-N-I-E
1: Human first, everything else after Human first, everything else after